Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty and this week I'm talking to Sarah Dove, who is Director of Phoenix Education Consultancy. Sarah has had an incredibly rich and diverse experience of working with young people who, for one reason or another, have fallen outside of mainstream schooling, either through ill health, mental health or behavioural uh, challenges. And she shares her learning with us about how to be curious and collaborative in your approach to behaviour, how to balance a positive approach to behaviour across the school with some of those more tricky cases. I also ask her about what she has seen change in the last 20 years or so that she's been working in alternative provision and what more change she'd still like to see. She also shares with us some of her findings from a survey she conducted of young people and their thoughts about the lockdown experience and her real ability to put people voice at the heart of the matter. It's fantastic to talk to Sarah. Her passion and curiosity is really evident and I hope you enjoy this conversation. As ever, Key Voices is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion about topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth information about the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Today, I am joined by Sarah Dove, who is Director of Phoenix Education Consultancy. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. Great to have you with us. Before we crack into um, questions, we're going to be talking today a bit about behaviour, alternative provision. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your experience? No problem. So I've worked in education for the last 20 years um, as a qualified teacher. I cut my teeth um, in the old fashioned work related learning courses for children at risk of exclusion um, or children newly arrived to local authority or those that were taking entry level courses because they um, weren't quite able to do GCSEs, for example. I then moved to be the teacher in charge of a psychiatric unit. So overseeing um, the educational provision in a tier four service for children who had severe and enduring mental health needs. Um, I've also um, been the head of pupil referral units, both for those for behaviour, as well as those for children with medical needs. Um, Predominantly worked in secondary education, um, although have also worked in primary education. Um, And then I decided to go out on my own to be a education consultant where I do school improvement work. Um, I do incident reviews if something happens um, and that's taken me quite far afield, including secure training centres, hospital settings, tier four, inpatient services and so on. Wow, a really broad range of experience there and so interesting to hear about about those different kinds of, of settings and, and needs um, that, that, that you've been in, involved with um, uh, children in, in, those, in those places. So you've got a, a huge amount of experience to bring to this conversation today. And thank you again for being with us. So you, you recently wrote a book, Behaving Together in the Classroom, and it's been really well received. Can you, can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to write it? Um. First of all, I would never have imagined that I would be writing any book whatsoever. So I was incredibly excited. And the book literally came from 
um, someone coming to watch me do a talk and saying, I think it'd be really good if you wrote a book about behaviour. Um, so I gulped a little bit and I was incredibly excited. Um, and lots of toing and froing about the title. So initially there were conversations around, let's call it managing behaviour. And I said, I don't manage anybody. That's not the sort of book that I want to write. I want to look at behaviour as a collaborative approach. And I think because of my context of work, which has been diverse in terms of working with a whole range of different students, I wanted to give something back to the educational community, which used my experiences, but the children's experiences in a way that helped others in the future. And as I was writing the book, um, there's lots and lots of children that I talk about, and hopefully I talk about the children in a way that's um, gentle, authentic, appropriate, and all those sorts of things, um, and shows actually I really care for those children. But as you read the book, it, there's also children that don't quite make it. Um, there's children that die, for example. Um, and I wanted to honour their memory but also kind of acknowledging the difficulties that teachers might face working with the most challenging cohort of children you can work with. The ones that I think when you go into teaching, you want all your children to, to go on, to do great things, to have families, to go to university, to have a good successful work career. Um, and then acknowledge the acknowledgement that some children might find things really difficult for health reasons or because of their behaviour might end up in places such as prison and so on is really challenging. So I wanted to give as much inf information as possible to the educational community about how I manage those challenges, but also how can we support children when we become really entrenched in what we see in front of us. That's really um Gosh, to, to, to think about it like that and, as you say, share a kind of uh, warts and all perspective on it that, um, you know, not every story is going to have a happy ending and that, that you know, actually that, that that is something to come to, come to terms with uh, for the professionals involved and, and you know, not, not blame yourself or, or see yourself at, at fault there and kind of under, understand um that that wider picture um yeah that, that I, I can i can imagine a lot of your readers have found that that really useful to have that that full spectrum of of experience there and in it you you focus on kind of getting a, a sort of better deeper understanding of of why children behave in a particular way uh and you know i'm i'm no behavior expert and i can't speak as a teacher but <laughs> I'm the mother of a toddler and I regularly want to understand why she's doing what she's doing. Um, could you maybe talk us through how you go about un unpicking the, the causes of behaviour? So I don't see myself as an expert either. Um, so having a 12 year old at home, um, I think. So I just want to say I won't be able to help the universe. <laughs> um, and but also. But in all seriousness, I, I, I try not to position myself as an expert because I see children as experts of their own experiences. And there is no one approach, and I say all the time, there's no panacea of this tip will help all children. And that's the big thing about my book, actually, is that you can draw upon lots of different things. There's loads of books around 
um, behaviour out there that you can read and find out more about. And I know that's not a very good advert for my own book, um, but it's a reality. However, what I would say is that you start off with curiosity. And with that curiosity, it's about really noticing what you see in front of you. And I talk about different stages of looking at behaviour and being reflective. And I think it's really easy to notice something happening and then responding to it. And that can be really important because it might be that what you notice is dangerous and you need to respond immediately. That's that's really important that we do that. Um, you know, I've noticed, for example, when I've taken a child out on um, an educational visit that they went to go and run out on the road. At that moment in time, I don't need to understand what's driving the behaviour. Um, and or anything else, I need to stop that behaviour immediately because there's another concern there. But those moments are fairly unusual and there's often an opportunity to notice and see with that professional curiosity about what is happening in front of you and then trying to understand about what's driving that behaviour. What does it really mean rather than just responding? And I think that becomes really powerful. Um, in my book, I think, I can't remember, I can't remember if it made the cut. Um, I remember um, working in a psychiatric unit in London and there's an incredible um, consultant that I worked with, Dr. Um, Navina Evans. And um, we were really entrenched in responding in the same way to this young person's behaviour who isn't spoken about in the book. And we become in this cycle of doing the same thing over and over again. And it, it wasn't working. The young person was in increasing distress. We were in increasing distress because you don't want to get into a cycle of restraining and holding a young person or seeing a child self-harm. It's, it's really upsetting. And she just asked a really simple question, what, which was, um, how can we think about this differently? And that's a question that I've really held as being very powerful because often we can do the same things over and over again. So often when I work with others, and it feels like we're having the same meetings talking about the same things and yet there's the same outcome that doesn't really mean anything. I asked the very poignant question, how can we think about this differently? And that's an underpinning driver of the book. Rather than just going, this child is behaving in this way and therefore we must do this. It's more about how do we unpick this to really understand what's going on for them? We often use phrases such as um, behaviour is communication. And I think that has the potential of preventing us really understanding what's going on for a young person. Of course, behaviour is communication. Absolutely. We know that. That's fine. But actually, what does that tell us about how do we change how that young person is communicating? What does it really mean? And how does it affect all of those people within that? Yeah. And... And, and, and as you say, taking taking that time to step back and and not leap into kind of action and response mode. Um, and yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure lots of people listening to this will will think of examples where, yeah, just doing the same the same thing hasn't hasn't worked. But, you know, that need to respond is, is so strong sometimes and, and kind of to toning that down. And, and and listening and, and and thinking differently so so interesting and given that you know um you, you don't then have unlimited time to think about about what to do 
next? Like, what 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 advice can you offer to somebody who is, say, d- you know, dealing with a child who's who's got some challenging behaviour within within maybe a mainstream setting against a, a backdrop of maybe a kind of consistent approach to behaviour across the school? Um, how how can you how can you kind of reconcile those things if you are really kind of zeroing in on that particular child and their own experience? I think so. There's different people that talk about um, a culture of norms um, and values within a school environment. Tom Bennett, for example, um, speaks quite prolifically around that culture of positive behaviour, and I think that's right. To have a culture of positive behaviour, but equally, I think it's right to have a culture of curiosity um, and opportunities for teachers to share practice, to share considerations um, about what's going on for them in the classroom, and to feel open to be able to say, "I'm really struggling in this area." Do other people have these difficulties? I would say that culture of supporting children that are finding things really difficult comes from the top. So I think there has to be leadership from the head teacher that wants to include those young people within the schooling environment and promotes um, a positive culture to include those children as well. Um, I would be disappointed if our, if we, we if we notice that a child has challenging behaviour or whatever you want to call it and then our immediate response is actually we have consequences for that behaviour and these are the consequences and the consequences is uh, whatever they might be a detention or it might lead to exclusion temporary or otherwise now they may be entirely appropriate but i would also want to see how are we providing strategies to support the teacher and the young person um, in engaging with more positive behavior but also i think it's about drawing upon the resources in your community as well and when i talk about community i mean as a teacher your school community but also things such as your SENCO, your educational psychologist, um, your mentors, whoever might be there. But I know what you said about time being, time's really um, limited. And I think there are so many different um, competing challenges for teachers in this day and age that fitting it all in can be really difficult. So I don't want to take that away from teachers because there is so much that they need to do. Um, which is partly why I like working in pupil or feral units and alternative provision because mainstream was too busy for me um, and it meant that I couldn't give the attention that I wanted to, to children um, because I might only see a class twice a week, for example, and there'd be 30 children. And it would mean as well that those with the more kind of extreme external behaviours, um, the ones that were more noticeable, your fo- you focus in on, and then you forget the quieter children that might really still really struggle, but it might be internalised. Um, so I worry about those children as well. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like my recommendation is every teacher work in alternative provision, but that's not really realistic. Um, I think it's draw on resources around you, I think, as much as possible and work in a school which promotes that positive culture of curiosity and inclusion. Indeed, and as I say, really kind of speaking to some of the kind of issues and 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 difficulties there. In a you know, uh, teachers have so many responsibilities, and you know, um, 
pressures and and concerns that you know this 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 can be very difficult in you know especially managing a group of of, of 30 children who are going through 30 things and um and and and, and maybe responding as you say some some more noticeably and others just that kind of internalized struggle struggle with learning it does when you reflect on it like that you you really you really do think about how how heroic teachers are taking taking on all all of all that they do um and as, as you say your career has been focused in alternative um provision and it it, it might be a space that a, that a lot of people listening don't know um as as much uh, about or have a have a kind of um, a particular view or or perception of what can you tell us about the you know what's what's changed in in the in the time that you've been been working in in alternative provision and and particularly in terms of so, mainstream schools and their interaction with the sector oh, that's that last bit of the question is really important as well so having worked in Prus and ap for 20 years so i'm showing my age somewhat um i think initially when i first started there was little sense of a relationship between schools, local authority, and the alternative provision they were called PRUs at the time, people power units. Um, it was seen as a space in which children went when you didn't really want to see them again. So the very kind of stereotypical idea of the dumping ground and so on, they were seen very negatively. Um, parents certainly didn't want their children to go there. Um, I probably wouldn't have wanted my own child to go there. Um, it was predominantly around behaviour, um, not so much about medical needs at all. If you had medical needs, then actually you just wouldn't go to school. You'd be too ill. Over the years, things have changed significantly. I would say in the last 10 years in particular, um, schools have made a concerted effort to, and local authorities and lots of other providers that support children to see alternative provision and people referral units as a continuum of support. So there's now more of a free flow between the two provisions. So for example, whereas before it would be a child would be excluded from school and they would perhaps stay in the pupil referral unit for the rest of their educational career, unless they get what it was a statement then, or now we would call it an educational healthcare plan. Now I think there's more sense of actually we want to work with this young person to promote a readiness for a school, for a mainstream school. So you might find that even if a child is permanently excluded, that doesn't prevent them from returning to mainstream school and local authorities have fair access protocols, for example, to support that. But also it might be to that they're used to prevent exclusion. So really doing a finer piece of work around mentoring and so on. Um, you've also got things like managed moves where a child might um, remain on the role of their home what i would call their home school and um, whilst they have a trial placement at their other new school now sometimes they those work and sometimes they don't um, but i think there's more of a consistent approach around actually we're not just going to resort to exclusions but i also think some of the differences is when i remember um 20 years ago you would have children excluded for very, very serious offences, um, and which would be difficult to argue against, I think. Now what I see, and it might just be because I'm more aware of it, so I don't know the details, 
Um, but now I see more children being excluded for persistent disruptive behaviour, for example, and people have a different interpretation of that across schools, um, as well as the serious incidences as well. Um, but I do wonder if we now have more of a magnifying glass to those behaviours, whereas previously we probably wouldn't have known about them. So, for example, if 20 years ago a child did X outside of school, there'd be very little evidence of X happening, whereas now it's streamed. <laughs> and you know all about it because kids will tell you. Kids are great at telling you stuff and they will show you their WhatsApp messages and all those sorts of things. And you will see it on their Instagram where they'll have pictures of them doing X, Y, Z. We might not have known about that 20 years ago, but now we're confronted with it and then we have to have a response to it. So I think there's elements around that where the societal shift is potentially either putting a magnifying glass to behaviour that we may as adults not have known about or potentially driving some behaviours. Now, I don't know. And I, I said earlier on, as I said, which is a poor advert for an author, um, that I'm not an expert in behaviour because I think that the picture is so mixed and so complex. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because it's sort of um, a theme that we've picked up on the podcast talking about safeguarding as well, that, you know, this, the school gates is very, it's very porous now, this kind of, you know, activities, friendship groups, you know, all that stuff that's going on. Uh, the technology gives us much more of a, of an insight in into that, um, which, as you say, is very... Um, and what what more change do you think is coming or might be needed in terms of that interaction between between the two sectors? I think um, that there's been various DfE consultations around behaviour, for example. There have been discussions around unexpected um, moves in Year Eleven. I think there needs to be more scrutiny around the impact and the efficacy of managed moves and children moving from place to place um, but also potentially using elective home education because the schooling system may not be meeting their child's needs or that parents are concerned about their child being at risk of exclusion. I think there needs to be fair funding models for people with feral units and alternative provision. You can find funding for some being a lot more um, significant than others and that then gives you a postcode lottery about what provision is available in the local authority so the center of social justice for example did a piece of work um warming the cold spots around ap and you can just find it on their website around some areas not having um good to outstanding ap in the area i think we need to understand that better um, and find out what's going on so I think that funding formula needs to be a national picture rather than something that is um, defined by uh, the local authority, for example, individual commissioning arrangements. Um, I wonder what the SEND review will say around alternative provision, because again, many of the young people that um, attend Cruise or AP or at least referred to might have special educational needs as well. So how do we understand how we can do early intervention for those children around speech and language, for example, assessing their needs and understanding. There are calls that if a child is excluded, then they should have a full 
assessment from an ed educational psychologist. I wonder about what screening is available for children when they have been excluded um, to really understand what their needs are as well. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in Cruise and AP, um, one of which is seeing it as not as dumping grounds, but a continuum of support where children can move from space to space and be flexible. But also whilst moving from space to space, I'm not saying jumping from school to school to AP to prove because actually children need to feel like they belong to a community um, and they need to have a love of learning. So if you if you're finding that children are moving very quickly from one place to another to another place to avoid exclusions, and sometimes that's facilitated by local authority decision making. But what that means for the child is that actually it's really difficult to make friends. Well, children that might find it difficult to make friends anyway. They don't feel like they belong. It's difficult to build relationships with teachers and senior leaders and teaching assistants and so on. So I think there needs to be a closer lens to that, to movement between provisions, um, between schools, um, and to make sure that it's done in the best interest of children. I will also, um, because hopefully you're going to make me um, the education secretary so i get to make lots of decisions well if it um, was in my power of course i would absolutely I, I don't think i'd want the job actually but <laughs> if i did have the job um i would want to really how can i put this decision making needs to be made in the best interest of the child and not about the school structure um there needs to not be perverse incentives um to have a child taken off role um and actually there needs to be more incentives to include children rather than the reverse. That's what I would like to see. I would also love to see um, the exclusions guidance ripped apart and started again. I don't think it's fit for purpose um, for lots of different reasons. Um, so I'd like to start with that if that's possible as my role as the new education secretary, <laughs> which I'll never get that job. <laughs> as you say, yeah. Would you would you really would you really want it? Um, yeah, I think so much to re reflect on there um and uh as you say kind of like you know positive a lot of positive change but but still work to do there to ensure the kind of equality of of access to good alternative provision and i'm i'm really struck i was listening to some brilliant um, um, secondary school pupils talk about their experiences of the pandemic yesterday and and um and and one of them was sort of saying, well, be, being at school, I always have to fit myself around the system at school. And then when I was home learning, I could just do do my work in the order that I wanted and go for a run when I needed to, to, to let off steam and then do, 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 do my lessons in, in this order. And yeah, it's interesting to think about about how we've all had to kind of learn more about ourselves and um, you know how how we're effective or or happy in in this sort of lockdown um, period uh, that, that that we've had. And we've obviously talked a lot on the on the podcast in recent months about remote learning and and technology and 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 its impact. And I'm I'm just curious to know um, how alternative provision kind of continued um, the amazing work they do with with pupils remotely and like to hear more about it so one of the things that um crews and ap's are really really good at is flexibility and to develop practices depending on what's happening around them in context now i'll, I'll start with the 
I'll start with the assertion that Cruise and AP weren't closed and they were open mm. because obviously working with more vulnerable children and so on. But there would be individual risk assessments around that young person, um, whether or not they could attend on a kind of face-to-face -face basis or actually it was safer for them to be at home. Some rose to the challenge around um, remote learning by providing laptops and having synchronous um, lessons are happening at the same time. Some utilised pre-recordings to engage with young people. Some did door drop-offs of food, but also mentoring, so doing distance mentoring and having a walk around the house, um, around the um, around the area and around the community. Um, one of my roles I forgot to mention at the beginning is as president of the national organisation Cruzap, uh, People Throwing It's an AP, which represents Cruise and AP nationally, and we did a piece of work really at the beginning of COVID-19 about what people could learn from remote learning um, in terms of the use of Microsoft Teams, Skype, how do we engage young people and so on. And what some organisations found is those children with anxiety, um, mental health difficulties, for example, really engaged in the remote world in the way that you've said because they had more control over how they accessed it. Um, some provisions such as Oak National Academy was what was used in some organisations, but for the most part, there was it was about the relationships they had with the teachers. So the teachers would be delivering the curriculum just as they would be in class. Now, obviously there'd be some children that wouldn't engage and wouldn't turn up. And that's when those kind of doorstep visits became more obvious or also inviting them into um, work face to face. And and um, you've done quite a lot of, of digging into really um, young people's experiences during during the pandemic. And and I really love that phrase that you that you mentioned before about about them being experts in their own experience. Can you tell us about some of your kind of research findings from the surveys that you did? Yes, so I did um, two particular surveys at different points of the pandemic. I don't want to do any more surveys, so I hope the pandemic finishes soon. I did one fairly at the beginning, as people were talking about young people going back to school. Um, and it was talking about their, their thoughts and worries about returning to school. It was really focused on that. And then the next survey um, was, I believe, around October, um, so this time last year, 2020, when children had started to return to school and asking them what their actual experiences were and what made them feel safer and happier. The biggest thing what I found is that there was two particular elements which children really benefited from in terms of returning to school. One of which was their friends and having that social contact was really important. The other thing was having, was their teachers. And lots of the children spoke about the shared experience. It wasn't just them missing school, but their teachers were missing school and their teachers made them feel safe in lots of different ways. Um, and that included, for example, teachers filming the one way system, the different spaces they might have to use and sending it. For others, it was teachers having close correspondence with their parents. So their parents could then act as mediators and talk to their child about what the return to school would look like. Some children were frustrated by others not following the rules. 
Um, and what I noticed when I drilled down, because I asked children if they attended Prus or AP, is that the children in Prus and AP would answer questions in more um, constricted ways. So whereas a child might say, for example, in mainstream, um, I'm really worried about catching COVID and uh, passing it on to my grandmother, for example. A child um, in a pre or AP was more likely to say things such as COVID-19. So the way that they spoke about things were more restricted. And I wondered about that and how we could accommodate the more restricted ability to be able to communicate their thoughts and feelings, how we might support those children and giving them the words to explain how they feel. Um, so that was a really important part of the research as well, was what was the difference between certain children, but also children with medical needs that might not have been attending school for many, many months before COVID um, because they had life-limiting, life-threatening conditions such as cancer. Um, and for them, it wasn't much different, but their arguments were, why couldn't have this been done before for them? Mm. Um, and that's a difficult question to answer. It is, it is interesting how, how, um, how when it affects everybody, you do start to see where, where some, some other people have been for quite, for quite a long time. And I think it's those, um, those personal interactions with teachers, as, as, you, as you were saying, um, and this is definitely coming across in the panel of young people that I heard yesterday. And one of them just said, I was so lonely. So anytime a teacher, you know, made a joke or did did some little funny, thoughtful thing for us, it was like, no matter how small, I just really appreciated it. And it, you know, picked me up for the day. And yeah, it's, it's a huge responsibility, but it, it does also show that, you know, it, it's school and that is so much more than, you know, just transmitting knowledge and teaching and learning, which we all know, of course, but it's those things that really kind of bring it home, those observations. Um, as you say, you don't have any immediate plans to do any more research uh, because hopefully we will we will not be in a position to, to need need another lockdown. But who knows? We're talking we're talking in October. Anything may happen. But in terms of um, thinking about kind of pupil pupil voice in in the behaviour conversation, have you got any kind of um, reflections or thoughts to share on that? I think children. Are often not asked why are you doing what you're doing i think we can just say i, I don't understand this is it about this um, i often use scripting in my work um, where you have kind of phrases that you say um, so i might say things like um, i can see you're upset but i don't know why can you explain to me and then a child might say i'm not upset i'm really you know, I'm not going to swear because it's a podcast and you're being punished. Um, and I'll say, oh, okay, why is that? And to open up that dialogue, I think is really important. But also you need to kind of get the right moment as well. So if a child is behaving in a way that's uh, dangerous or there is, they're not listening, they're not able to listen because they are so high in terms of fury, anger and arousal levels, then sitting and waiting becomes really important. So um, in the book, for example, I talk about one boy who um, whose older brother um, went to a psychiatric unit. Um, he was taken away by ambulance and he used to um, throw chairs, hide under the table and things like that. And one of the things that I learned with him was that talking to him at that point, trying to 
get his perspective at the point of throwing chairs was too dangerous, wasn't worth it, he was too angry. And I would um, sit on the floor and I would just wait. And when he was ready, he would come and sit next to me. Uh, he'd come out from under the chair and we would have a conversation. And he'd always feel very, very guilty um, because he, he didn't want to hurt people. And eventually those sorts of behaviours minimised because we looked at alternatives for him when he was upset and angry. Um, and it's giving those children the moments beyond just castigating them or sanctioning them for their behaviour. He was only a little boy um, and finding and giving him the words if he wasn't able to find them. Now, I wonder if, again, that professional curiosity, I wonder if you're upset, I wonder if you miss your mum, I wonder if, um, is really important. And one of the other things I did was I visited him at home um, after a really serious incident at the school. And that told me so much more it, him being in his home environment than anything that could have told me at school. So again, that idea of that children do present differently in different places and feel more comfortable to tell you things in different places. Yeah, and, and that, that sort of difference in, in being at home and at school and, and yeah, trying to, to, to get more, more clarity there. I can imagine that that was, that was really useful. And you, you mentioned um, there's some kind of conversation starters and I know you do have um, some, some resources available um, are there any kind of um, that, you, that you want to mention here on the podcast we can we can pop a link to um, so if you um, go to my website which is the normal www.phoenixeducationconsultancy.com rolls off your tongue um, I have loads and loads of resources that are free to download um, under the resources bit and it's they're diverse as well. So there's booklets around um, changing schools, Tourette syndrome, lots around um, CBT, cognitive behavioural um, approaches um, for children that might have anxiety um, or anger um, and so on. So there's loads of different resources for primary and secondary. So please feel free to have a look. Um, it won't cost you anything. They're quick downloads on PDF um, and they can be useful to support conversations. It's about structuring and scaffolding a conversation because it's not just children that find things really difficult to understand it's also adults so it gives adults some of the words that they might want to use as well and and that's the thing and like once you've said the wrong thing it can be you know it's impossible to un unsay it so just having a, a bit of thought to what you might what you might try and having that in your back pocket i can imagine is really useful and we'll pop we'll pop a link um to that in the in the notes from this podcast and just just one final question really um something that um school leaders have been been saying to me in in the, the last half term or so is that, that quite a lot of young people are experiencing um sort of difficulties interacting with their peers kind of a bit more in the way of like playground behavior incidences and you know maybe some of this sort of tra tracking tracking back to lockdown and I just wondered if that kind of resonated with you or, or or you had any kind of helpful suggestions there yes no it has resonated um I think there's lots of different ways that it's resonated one of which is for example that children have mediated relationships through social media and for some of them that has been great 
that they've played roadblocks and they've chatted and they've played Pictionary online and they've chatted to one another. Others, maybe not such a positive way of mediating relationships where confusion, antagonism is played out on social media. And then when they see one another, there's, um, there's conflict, but in face-to-face -face real life. Whereas normally you might be able to just have a conversation with someone and be able to um, reduce issues. So I think in that way it has. Um, but also I think that some children are really anxious and they're really worried. They might have gone through quite a lot during COVID. Um, you know, I was absolutely blessed. I've got um, a three bedroom house, but yet we still had two people working. We had someone in the house doing an access course and my daughter was also doing full-time learning. You know, issues around space. I know of children that might have been in hotel rooms, for example, because they've been moved from domestic violence um, to some, you know, safe space. Um, but there might be three or four people in one room trying to do things. Um, I don't think we can minimise that. Um, but also children who might just be really worried about going back to school because um, I've worked with children whose mums have died, for example, of COVID and what that means for them. And they've had a lot of change. Um, it's no wonder some of those things are played out in the school playgrounds and beyond and after school. It's not to say that every child is traumatised. I don't believe that's the case. Um, some children have really enjoyed being at home. Um, but I think we need to, again, I talk about what do we notice? What do we understand? How do we respond to that? So really trying to get to grips about what's driving that behaviour. Indeed, um, really, really helpful. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. That's, I mean, you've got such um, rich, diverse experience and we've just scratched the surface in this conversation. And um, thank you for telling us more about your book um, and, and the resources that are available on your site, but, but also really, really interesting to have that conversation about the, the changes um, in alternative provision um, as, as well. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.